Welcome to Etchimon with Willis and Alex. Hey everyone, my name is Willis and I'm joined by my good friend and co-host Alex as always. Hey Alex. Hi everyone, hi Willis. Welcome to another episode of Etchimon, where we're all about exploring phrases that we use today and exploring those particular phrases which have their origins from the Bible, which is quite a few, given that I think we're up to our 22nd episode now, which is quite exciting. I think it's 23 and we've just been keeping bad records, actually. Oh, okay. Or maybe we did one where we didn't focus exactly on the phrase. Perhaps. Yes. No, definitely. I trust Alex on this much more than myself. So yes, 23rd, we'll say. Okay. First of all, Alex, I should ask how you are. I'm all right. (laughs) Okay. Okay. It is Good Friday on the day we're recording this. Don't know what that says about us. As in like we don't have anything better to be doing without. I don't know. Maybe. Is there a sense in which we're kind of not being good Christians because we're messing around recording a podcast on what is supposedly the holiest day in the Christian calendar? (laughs) I don't know. Um, we'll have to really rethink this, won't we? No, I think at least I myself, I hope I can bring Alex around so he doesn't have this feeling of guilt the whole time that he's recording this episode. <laughs> but I think the Christian life's a lot about freedom in Jesus. And yes, there's a time for reflection. But I think there's also a pretty cool time to do stuff like this as well, which we as Christians also think is capable of being something that's quite pleasing to God. So we're excited. I am. I'm going to try and bring Alex on board to be recording this on Good Friday. It is a special day of the year, no doubt. I wonder what our listeners are doing on Good Friday as well. Do feel free to send us a message whether you do celebrate Easter or you don't. Today, we have the cool opportunity to share with you not a phrase, but a word that Alex was interested in looking at, which stems from the Bible. And Alex, take it away. The word is ambitious. And I'm not exactly sure, again, it's one of those phrases where I don't know exactly if it comes from the Bible, but according to one source, apparently the word ambitious came about in English when someone was translating the Bible into English from Latin and decided to borrow the Latin word. I think it's ambitiosa or something like that. I don't know how to pronounce it because I don't speak Latin. No one does anymore. Sorry, I, should, well, there was I, this... I think people do speak it for fun and Latin masses and stuff like that as well, but I'm not sure particularly anyone has full claim on terms of how to pronounce words properly in the Latin language. Mm. At least the pronunciation would have certainly differed yes. whether you're speaking it now to 500 years ago to mm. 2000 years ago, I suppose. Anyway, I think in the Latin Bible, so that was like the dominant Bible for most of or a lot of European history, the phrase was non est ambitiosa or something like that. And that got translated into English, maybe something like don't be ambitious. I think that's a, a interesting thing for the Bible to say. And what's even more confusing is that this phrase doesn't really appear in most of our contemporary English Bible translations, the word ambitious. It's replaced by something like dishonor others or act improperly or doesn't act disgracefully, referring to the topic of today's episode, which is really the background behind the word ambitious. And that topic is... The topic is love, L-O-V-E. Indeed. Um, It's from a pretty famous part of the Bible. Do you want to give us a rundown? It goes, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. And it says a lot of... It sounds like a poem, basically. It's usually said with much more 
sincerity yeah. and grandeur. Sorry, I, I probably, you know, I was kind of disparaging <laughs> no, it and reading off like a... You might have hints. It's very often at religious services for weddings to be the Bible passage that's chosen by the wedded couple to be used. I've heard just from today that quite often a passage that's cited at funerals as well as wedding. Is that right? Oh, I think <laughs> yeah. maybe it just works for all occasions. And maybe that goes to what love is. It's such a slippery word. So I think me as a person, publicly, generally speaking, I don't see myself as a very emotional person. And I can tend to be fairly like rationalistic and analytical. So doing a podcast on the topic of love does kind of rub against me naturally because it's like what is love <laughs> which is basically uh, i think what this kind of topic is what does it mean for love to not be ambitious as it was literally translated from latin that's really weird i, I don't want this to just be a random banter that we're recording it's such an important word and i think all of us in some degree think that love is important but such a slippery thing to define and especially for christians who often claim to be about love. And if there's one thing that people think Christians do, religions in general should be about love and peace. But what exactly does it mean? It seems to mean different things for different people. And so I think it's actually pretty important that we dig a bit deeper and think about what it actually means to love, I guess. Completely agree with that. Maybe it'd just be good to kick off by reading this passage. But before I do, Please. I'll just give our listeners some background. So it's from a letter which we've looked at before on this podcast series. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. It's titled 1 Corinthians, so the Corinthian church back in Corinth, likely at most a couple decades after Jesus' crucifixion. And he's writing a letter to this church. But let me just read it out first. And it's from chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. I'll start reading from verse 4. Before I read, I would just like that I'm reading from a more contemporary version, which doesn't use the word ambitious, but uses another word. And maybe just to be cheeky, I'll only share what that word which replaces ambitious is at the end after I finish reading. Let me begin. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. And that's a passage. And as promised, um, the word ambitious from the Latin, in the translation that I've been reading, I believe that word ambitious has been translated as rude. So in mm -hmm. verse four to five, it says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. That rude word is, I think, 
the word for ambitious there. Is that right, Alex? Yeah, Just... I think it's both. I think it's arrogant or rude. Yeah, I think maybe that phrase, arrogant or rude. So I've got in the one I'm looking at, it does not dishonor others. Gotcha. And then the next one after that is self-seeking, not self-seeking. Very interesting. Maybe just to clarify before we get more confused about ambitious, apparently that word meant something like eager to impress. So it's something about your conduct towards other people. Maybe that's how we get things like it's rude and arrogant or dishonorable or improper. It's something related to or relationship with others. But then again, I think pretty much every characteristic of love is demonstrated in relation to others. So it's probably not very helpful. Yeah. And that's pretty interesting. It sounds like obviously that word ambition was using quite a negative connotation then clearly in the sense in which people sought to invent that word ambitious to capture what the original Greek said in this passage. I looked up synonyms of ambitious mm -hmm. and according to theosaurus.com, I think it was, there are some that are reputable, more source. positive. Yeah, Synonyms yeah. of ambitious include enthusiastic, energetic, exactly. generally it's a good thing. Exactly, sense of ambition that we have today. But it can also be something like aggressive, which sounds see, a bit... You'll see that too, don't you? You can say this guy's very ambitious and use that in quite a negative sense as well. So no, I think that does make sense to me, at least. Alex, do you reckon it'd be helpful just to give like maybe a brief summary about like why Paul is talking about love in this particular part of his letter to the Corinthian church? That's a good question because it sounds like a beautiful poem put down in the middle of a letter. So the Corinthian church is a church we've met before on this podcast. I think we were talking about it last time. Church in, in Corinth, obviously, which is a place in Greece. You can still visit there today. Um, it was like a rich trading city in their church, though. They had a lot of issues. And so a lot of the letter is Paul talking about specific issues that he's seeing in the church. And he's like, you people in Corinth, are really messing things up and it's not good and it's kind of really spelling out specific instances and how to deal with them and since this chapter comes towards the end of the letter i guess we can read it as a positive injunction it's a positive spin on the things he's been saying before about don't do this don't do this and I guess in a way, Paul is kind of summing up what he's talking before about the way that you're behaving in church and what that ideally should really look like. It does seem that it's a messy church. And on top of calling out a number of things that they're just doing really badly, Paul also it just sort of encourages them what church ideally does look like. And one of the central features in the midst of it all is, is this conception of love between brothers and sisters at church in Christ? between fellow people. And he introduces this as like an even more excellent way in which we can be honoring God and Jesus as Christians together as church community. It is in this way of love that we show to each other, which he then expounds on. I wonder how it feels for us to just hear this and whether we're nodding in agreement and saying, yeah, that's right. Love is patient and it's kind and it should be this and it should be that. But stealing from another sermon I've heard, the preacher kind of used an activity and say, oh, imagine if you replaced the word love with your name. For example, Alex is patient. Alex is kind. Alex is not yet. And I probably can't really go on because I feel like I'm lying or at least just feel uncomfortable. And <laughs> I wonder if that is kind of intentional to kind of realize that we haven't met these standards and we might think of ourselves or maybe I think of myself and I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I fit some of these boxes, but not all of them, or whatever. We all know that we're not perfect. We should all be aiming for this, but we owe that we fail on a day-to-day -day basis. And 
I think that should point us towards for Christians that we're not just doing this by our own efforts, because actually the verses that you missed out Willis at the start, Paul is like, I'll just roughly paraphrase, right? If I have all of these abilities or if I have amazing knowledge and if I even have a faith that can move mountains and I give all my money to the poor and do all these great acts that outwardly look like love is something that's really admired in the church or by other people. If I have all of these abilities and all of these actions, but I'm still missing a little something called love, whatever that is, there's no value to it. I gain nothing if I do not have love, which really just, I think, begs the question even further. What is love then if love isn't giving money to the poor and love isn't self-sacrifice? Because that's one of the things that he's mentioned at start or instead describes these qualities, which are more, I guess they're visible, but they still have to start from inside. So Hmm. kindness and patience and not being easily angered. They're all things that you could possess without someone seeing you possess them necessarily. I get what you mean. They're more like motives rather than the actions themselves. In the Mm. sense that, you know, you can give away all your possessions and even deliver up your body to be martyred and burned. I think Paul's making the point that you can do that in a very unloving way, oddly enough. Maybe that's an odd Christian concept that you can be doing good things with Mm. bad motives. But I feel like we intuitively get that, don't we? We intuitively do get that. We can be humble outwardly in a selfish way. Yeah, I think maybe in our context in Australia, where we tend to not like our leaders and relatively egalitarian. So if a politician says something that genuinely does sound good, or like if a wealthy person is giving away a lot of money to charity, we can often be cynical about that, right? And surely they're doing it for publicity. There's always an underlying motive. We are always quick to suspect, not always, but we're generally quick to be suspect of other people's motives, even if on the outside they look good. We probably don't do that enough for ourselves, though. I think uh, another way to put a spin on this, replace the word love with Jesus, and then oh, everything suddenly kind of rolls off the tongue as well, like Jesus is patient, Jesus is kind. And so a part of what it means to love, I think, as cliched or as obvious as it might sound for Christians, is that at the end of the day, Jesus is the definition, the walking definition of love. God is love. And Jesus, before he died, said, I don't even remember the exact quote, but it's one of the last things he says to his disciples, that he dies, a man gives his life for his friends, something along those lines. Mm -hmm. And it's those qualities we look to As an example, but even more than that, right? Lots of people have sacrificed their lives for the sake of others. That's a fact of history. But there is only one person, Christians believe, who humbled himself from being God, being deity. And Jesus was always God, but he humbled himself to come and live on earth, crossed from one world to another to suffer and die. That isn't just a self-sacrifice so it looks good in front of others or because it's expected or because other people will admire him for it. He had everything. He was eternally God. He is eternally God. And yet Jesus did this to demonstrate his love. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. That's one of the, I guess, summaries of the key points of what the Bible teaches. A good summary. Yeah, I think Paul is saying all of this because he believes that Jesus has saved the church that he's writing to, to make it, I guess, possible 
for all this to happen, for love to abound in this church. And that's why he's exhorting, I guess, these Christians to do these things, to love others in light of the fact that Jesus has loved them first and in light of the fact that Jesus has loved them so much that we've become, in Paul's language, members of Jesus's own body as a church. And we seek to build one another in love, growing in maturity, in our faith and our love of God in Jesus through this whole process. Jesus's perfect love has made it possible for us as Christians, we believe, to love others in this way that Paul is encouraging the Corinthian church to be doing. As always, it may not be in the same level of perfection that Jesus has shown, but it is a thing to we as Christians can aspire to, we believe, because of what Jesus has done. I think that's a really good point that it's not Paul saying, look how bad church is going. You're getting a fail grade for all of these things. You need to do better. It's looking to Jesus. Why should you be patient and kind? Because God has been patient and kind to you. Why should you not be easily angered and keep no record of wrongs? It's because that's what God's like. And God is not easily angered and he has kept no record of your wrongs because he's forgiven your sins and you're free to live a new life to serve and please God. So it's always looking back to this is who you are. This is who you're meant to be. And you should live like who you're meant to be, as opposed to a try harder, do better message. Yeah, I wonder, to those who are listening, like, what do you feel about this? Does this sound appealing to you, I guess, this vision of a loving community that has been made possible by what Jesus claims to have done? Or is it more like, kind of get what you're saying, but parts of it sounds a bit appealing and don't ring truly to me as well. Regardless of whatever side you're sort of sitting on at the moment when it comes to this, do share that with us. We'd love to continue to engage with you if you'd like to, whether it be in person or over the comments. So just want to extend that invitation. Let's engage, let's chat. Feel free to send through strong disagreements. <laughs> we do love that. And we do really enjoy having frank discussions and open and respectful ones about faith. I think I'd rather not have strong disagreements. I think personality-wise, I'm pretty different to Willis, but oh, yeah. you're very open to discussion. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to just mention? Maybe a stereotype is that people go to church to be better or, or think that church is for people who are already good. That sort of vibe, I think, still exists a little bit, like the holier than thou sort of that's another phrase we might have to get to that sort of feeling oh christians they always think they're so good but they don't realize how hypocritical they are they say they are about love but look at all the hateful things they're doing and, and that sort of look at how vibe. unloving they are despite yeah i think maybe to kind of change that stereotype a bit i think the corinthian church was a pretty unloving church as well it was full of pretty horrible things like they just embarrassed those who were more financially disadvantaged, I think was one of the terrible things they did. Celebrating, I think someone slept with his stepmother or something. And I think in our society, we can generally agree isn't a great thing. Things like that. And church is full of broken people. And church is open to anyone. It's not just good people. There's a phrase that's like, oh, church is full of hypocrites and there's always room for one more. <laughs> I guess for anyone who does feel they need Jesus or they need something in life that they're lacking, church is always open to everyone. It is a good point to just acknowledge. I think that Christians have not always modelled well what it is to love well. It's a nuanced topic. I do personally believe that there is a uniqueness to the Christian conception of love, which does I think, yeah, even from this passage, just sometimes may ring a bit off to the rest of the world. Particularly, you might have just heard that there was this part about love rejoicing with the truth as well. And I'm just particularly thinking of the context of common phrases that we hear thrown out around at least Western culture at the moment, like love is love, etc. 
that there is, I guess a Christian conception does believe that it's a love that is on God's terms, particularly the, the implications of that there is such thing as, I guess, inverted commas, what other people would consider to be love, which Christians would just simply believe that God is saying is not, shouldn't be characterized with that same label. Yeah, that opens any other bucket of worms. Keen chat about that too. I've heard someone quite eloquently put it recently that Jesus was a very loving person, he did hang out with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. But the result of that was that the tax collectors and the prostitutes went away changed and not Jesus. It is a transformative love that Christians believe is at the heart of our faith. A love that first transformed sinners like me and Alex uh, to become Christians. And it's the same love that continues to transform us today as well. And we might wrap it up here. Thank you so much if you continued to tune in. Do continue to stay in touch and stay tuned to our podcast. Love to hear from you. We look forward to catching you in our next episode. But for now, this is Willis and Alex checking out.